Welcome to the Recovery Project live stream on America's global role in the age of COVID-19. Thank you everyone for joining us. My name is Roland Paris. I'm a professor of public and international affairs at the University of Ottawa and founder of the Centre for International Policy Studies and an associate fellow at Chatham House. For those of you who are new to the Recovery Project's work, this initiative was launched by Canada 2020, Global Progress, and the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. And it's designed to stimulate discussion and thinking about how we can emerge from this crisis with stronger institutions, resilient economies, and better policies. If you're interested in learning more about the project, please visit recoveryproject.org or follow the initiative on Twitter. So today, I'm joined by a remarkable person, Anne-Marie Slaughter. She is the CEO of New America, think tank in Washington. She's also a professor emerita of politics and international affairs at Princeton University. And she's the former director of policy planning at the US State Department, a position she held from 2009 to 2011. And on top of all of that, she's the author of several big thinking books on public policy and international affairs. Anne-Marie, thank you for joining us. Welcome to The Recovery Project. Roland, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. You know, your country is going through an extremely tumultuous period. Coronavirus is spreading again at an accelerating rate. We've witnessed this remarkable wrenching debate over uh, racial justice. And of course, the United States and many countries, including Canada, are faced with this historic economic slowdown. I'm interested in how you think this moment compares to previous periods of political and ideological and social conflict in the United States. What's interesting, Samuel Huntington wrote a book where he said essentially the United States goes through periods of major upheaval every 60 years. And we are definitely due if you look at the 1960s and here we are in 2020. Also just generationally as the baby boomers, my generation age, and you have this massive generation of millennials that often also kind of creates the kindling for this kind of upheaval. But there's no question that you know, we have a kind of perfect storm of economic health and moral uh, crises, uh, justice and, and, and moral crises. And uh, they feed on each other. Uh, the, the COVID sort of showed us the racial discrepancies, the disparities in terms of who is dying with data every day. People are also home. Uh, they were then able to process the video of the murder of George Floyd. And they also are out of jobs, enormous numbers out of jobs. So free to go and protest and to continue protesting. So you have all these different uh, factors. And of course, you have a president who is actively seeking to divide the country. I keep wondering what it might be if you had Barack Obama or George W. Bush, but anybody who's who played the normal role of a president, which is to say, look, this is the direction we're going. We need unity. We'll never survive if we fight each other. You have the opposite of all that. But I do also believe that we are due 
for massive change. As the country has been sliding sideways and down, I think really from the beginning of the century, from the millennium, in terms of just the decay of so many of our systems, and you in Canada can come and drive on our roads and see that very, very quickly, or our healthcare, or our lack of broadband. If you put that together with the racial disparities, uh, and they, you know, we've made progress, but we've not made nearly enough. Sooner or later, you get one of these enormous surges that says, we're a country that stands for all people being created equal with an equal chance at life, liberty, and opportunity, and look at what we really are. I find that to be a positive thing overall, but I will agree that right this moment with the combination of crises, it's as bad a moment in our history as certainly I've ever lived through. You mentioned Samuel Huntington, and I think you were talking about the, the promise of disharmony book and about how these periods where America kind of reconnects with its foundational values. You wrote a really terrific book in 2007 called The Idea That Is America, Keeping Faith With Our Values in a Dangerous World. And the values you identified as kind of core American values in that book were liberty, democracy, equity, justice, humility, remember that one, tolerance, and faith. You know, what would it take today for the United States to recommit to those values after the shocks and the strains of the last few years and months? It takes a lot of humility. And actually, when I wrote that, I wrote that book because I was so horrified by Abu Ghraib. Americans were actually standing up and not only seeing pictures of torture, but condoning it. And I thought, you know, this is not the country that I believe in. So I wrote that book. And at the time, people said, humility? You've got to be kidding. And I would point out George Washington believed in humility, Abraham Lincoln believed in humility, Martin Luther King. But I think right now, for white Americans particularly, we are realizing that the gradual approach where your you know racial relations get better is not working you know we are more segregated in our schools than we were in the early 1970s uh, and again if you look at the people who are poorest who are least healthy they are overwhelmingly african americans and latinx and native americans and others we are listening in a different way it's been very striking in the past month that conversations I've had only with other white people, this is what we're talking about. And we're realizing we need to listen and learn. So a lot of humility. But I also think that it is the very people who have been discriminated against the most who are offering a way forward to much greater equality. We'll never get there perfectly, but much greater equality, much more democracy and justice. And they are, as many African-American leaders have pointed out, they're the people who have benefited the least from America's promise and yet who still believe in it. And so I really do believe that it is going to be African-American leaders, other leaders of color working with white Americans. And, and of course, we're also on the cusp of becoming a majority minority country. I prefer a plurality country because I don't, I don't think it's a, a, an advantage for us all to be thinking we're minorities. We're all Americans. So that leadership, I do think actually we will see a surge 
to once again say, as Martin Luther King said to us in 1961, he said, you know, the Declaration of Independence is a promissory check and you have not delivered on that promise. That's what young people are saying to us again today, African-Americans, but also white side by side. And that's ultimately what it's gonna take. It does seem remarkable, the shift in opinion, at least uh, looking at it from a distance and seeing that reflected in opinion polls. You're talking about racial inequality. You wrote a piece in the uh, New York Times not long ago where you were talking about the effect of the pandemic in amplifying existing inequalities and many different kinds of inequalities. And, and you've also been talking about this being a time for really big changes in American government and society. Can you, can you elaborate a little bit more on what are the big changes in government and society that you would prescribe for the United States? How long do you have? But I will, <laughs> one of the other things I think is different about this moment. So you have, particularly among young people, but not only African-Americans, Latinx Americans, Americans of every color and white Americans side by side. And you also have a much greater solidarity on the economic front, right? So you're also seeing white Americans and others who've been left behind suddenly saying, you know, capitalism is not working for us. And that's again, you know, the Republican strategy, Nixon's strategy, the mm -hmm. Southern was we're going to divide people based on race and that way they won't notice that they in fact are all at the bottom of the heap when it comes to economics. The changes we need to make have to start with political changes. Our democracy is broken. In many ways, I don't feel like I live in a democracy because I know a majority of my fellow country people want things like reasonable gun control. They want, or gun safety. They want universal health care, right? They want, uh, if not a carbon tax, they want meaningful climate change uh, ways to fight it. And yet we can't get it. So we have to actually reform our political system. And there are many ways, obviously voting rights, absolutely. But more than that, we need to go to ranked choice voting, which would actually give us the equivalent of a kind of parliamentary fluidity. You could have third parties, fourth parties without being spoilers while still having a presidential system. And people say, oh, you can't do that. But a hundred years ago, we had our senators being elected by the legislatures of states and we, had, we didn't have primaries. We only had sort of backroom conventions. So we can do this and states are already doing it. But I think you have to overhaul our democracy so that you get money out, you get more choice in, more voices, more choices, and much more ability to compromise among different parts of the polity. There have been many very ambitious visions for social policy change as well, uh, including discussions about the possibility of some kind of rudimentary basic income or uh, Rahm Emanuel, the former uh, Chicago mayor and, and chief of staff uh, to Barack Obama, uh, floated the idea of the, of the U.S. federal government taking over states' responsibilities for Medicaid and in, unemployment insurance in exchange for the states funding universal pre-kindergarten and expanding spending on public colleges and investment in infrastructure. I mean, what are the chances of that kind of scale uh, transformation lasting as or emerging as a result of this uh, pandemic? What's a realistic expectation? I think it is realistic to assume 
fiscal changes of a scope and magnitude as in the Great Depression. I think COVID uh, and COVID plus, again, the fragility of so much of, of our society is the equivalent of a war. And as terrible as COVID is, I'm very glad it's not a war, uh, but it's global in the same way. So that things like a universal basic income become much more thinkable when the government suddenly printed trillions of dollars to get people through this uh, pandemic. And where you suddenly realize things like family leave, and but that's just that's just one tiny example of a whole suite of care policies, which include uh, universal child care. And yes, it's got to start at least at age three, and I would I would start it at the at the beginning, uh, where you suddenly realize we need to provide a foundation so that people can work, people can care for one another. Where I think it may be different is that I don't know that it will all be massive federal programs in the same way that it was uh, during the New Deal. I suspect a lot will happen at the state level, a lot will happen at the local level, but be supported by federal policy. And the other thing I would say is a huge change in worker power. Because if you look at us versus many our fellow peer countries, again, including Canada, we unions are way down, but even beyond that, the workers don't have the power to get their share of the country's prosperity. So I think we'll see a lot of change there. Interesting. The last thing I'll say yep. is universal broadband, right? High quality, because we can't educate people. We can't help people. People cannot work. It, I couldn't be talking to you if I didn't have high quality broadband, affordable. You've answered one of the questions that's on the Q&A uh, that's been posted by one of the people watching this, uh, Marcelo. And Marcelo asks, uh, unity and working together sounds good, but through which institutions can this work proceed? And I think part of your answer is that it would be at many different levels. I think so. Again, um, the kind of political change we need is being done city by city as cities new york city just voted in ranked choice voting you have about 30 american cities big big ones as well as smaller ones uh and states are making mm -hmm. that political change it's going to take a while before you can do that uh through washington uh, and even if uh biden wins even if you get the senate that's going to be tough you're not going to have the ability to just remake the country uh, from Washington. But I also think, and this was true before, I mean, Justice Brandeis wrote about laboratories of democracy in 1918, and we didn't get the New Deal for another uh, 12 years. Uh, you need experimentation. Uh, now, I would say universal health care, that I think you can absolutely do and must do and mean it. But things like education, you can reduce student debt, but how you make a high quality education cradle all the way through available, you need much more experimentation. And there again, I think it's state and a lot of local action uh, at the municipal level uh, and also in rural areas. You've also written a book and, a, and an article that got a lot of attention about uh, gender equality. And although racial justice is, has been top of mind during the last uh, several weeks, I'm interested uh, to ask you what you think the impact of the pandemic crisis has been on gender rights and gender equality. 
Well, of course, I will say the the intersection of the two, of course, are our, the poorest people in our society. And in many ways, if you focus policies on how to lift up and value the work of women of color, that would radiate out uh, from there to all sorts of other good policies. But the pandemic has had an interesting sort of dual effect. On the one hand, it's exacerbated gender inequality. Again, who are on the front lines, who have to be there, huge number again of women of color and women in the medical establishment who have have to be on the front lines. At the same time, who are bearing the brunt of having all the schools closed? Well, those are women. Uh, We have all all the statistics on men saying, no, I'm doing an equal share, uh, but the time diaries don't bear that out. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, men earn more. So if somebody's got to cut back to take care of the kids, it's more likely to be the woman than the man. That's the negative side. On the positive side, people like me have been arguing for a decade that we could afford to have people work from home much more, that we could allow far more flexible schedules, that parents should be able to juggle their work and their family needs, and now we've had a demonstration. To the point that lots of places are saying we're not going back to the office or we're only going back in a very different uh, basis. So I am optimistic that we will be able to work in ways, men and women, that are much more compatible with work and family. Uh, But I also think you still need a massive push uh, to rejigger family relations. And for me, that's about changing the role of men at this point more than changing the role of women. Yeah, well, we'll see how that interacts with uh, shifts in uh, remote working, et cetera. I wanted to turn to international affairs, but there is a question about Citizen United and about the, the role of money in U.S. politics and, and thinking about the impediments to achieving many of the goals that you're laying out. There will be uh, many barriers. Uh, eventually, there is going to be concerns about debts and deficits and fiscal pressures pushing the other directions. But on the specific question about the role of contributors to political campaigns and the interests that they represent, how significant is that as a barrier to accomplishing many of the things that you're talking about? Very significant. And again, you know, when I say our democracy is fundamentally broken, that is a huge part of it. When I say, look, you can see that a majority of the country wants all these things and we don't get them through, even healthcare and the power, not even, but healthcare, the power of the insurance companies with Obama and and, and, uh, a Democratic Congress, he still, you know, was stymied at every turn by precisely all that lobbying. Uh, so that is an enormous problem. And if you look at H.R. 1, the bill that the, the House first pe- bill, the Democratic-led House passed, it, it has all sorts of campaign uh, reform, all sorts of, of uh, voting rights. Uh, there, there are many different categories of problems. I still think that fundamentally, you've got two parties that are deeply entrenched and completely Uh, on opposite ends of the spectrum. And so even if you got rid of money, they're responding to primary voters uh, that do not reflect where the the core of the country is. So you have to get even more fundamental than taking money out of politics. But I'm all for taking money out. (laughs) I said we'd go to international affairs, but there's one other question that's just popped up from Jeff. 
Can you comment on the possibility of a U.S. green recovery and the extent to which uh, this could address multiple issues, including not just economic growth and employment, but improved health and justice? I devoutly hope that that is where we're going. I do see real possibilities. For one thing, um, Ted Halstead, who was uh, the founder of New America, has been working with a whole group of Republicans uh, and Democrats, but particularly Republicans, on uh, support for a carbon tax, uh, and where the dividends of that tax would then be plowed back into, or the, the proceeds of that tax would be plowed into citizen dividends. So you really have a direct stake. And that actually has quite a lot of support. I also would imagine if it is a President Biden, the first thing he will do is to create a kind of works progress administration, big federal jobs programs and building green infrastructure is the obvious thing, one of the obvious things, but a big one that we need to do. So I do see a lot of room there. Hillary Clinton had a whole, you know, it wasn't a recovery at that point. It was a, a clean jobs, green jobs program. Uh, but I, I again, uh, to get the kind of really big change we need. We can do a lot at the state level, but there you do need a, a Congress that is, that is willing uh, to, to, to commit uh, to something like a carbon tax. And that, that's, again, going to require big political change. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to actually ask another question about domestic politics from Jean-Marc about increased polarization that seems a likely outcome in November. And he goes on to say, other than looking for leadership at city and state levels, what are the likely consequences of a broken democratic system for a Biden-led administration to the U.S. place and influence in the world? Before we move on to international affairs, just ask you more generally about the issue of political and partisan polarization in the United States. It does seem very likely that the next less than four months now to November 3rd, are going to be exceptionally divisive. Uh, you see the president already laying the groundwork to question the legitimacy of results if he loses by talking about mail-in ballots as, sub as you know, making up stories effectively about the extent to which mail-in voting is subject to fraud. It's hard to see him walking away quietly, and if he wins, then the polarization and anger on the other side will be just as great. How do you move beyond this into another phase of governance? Just thinking about the, what are the longer term prospects for this level of polarization in America? It's bad. Again, social media amplifies the most extreme voices. Regular media amplifies the most extreme voices. I still think the considerable majority of Americans who would follow a leader who led on unity and really was determined to, to move the country forward. And I think there, there are great reservoirs of patriotism there uh, that properly led. You, you're not going to get to harmony and agreement, that never, that's not politics, but you would, you would move away from what we are seeing. Again, the primary system, the very party system is, is a big part of that. I expect that we are going to have a nasty election season, although it's interesting the polls today, you know, Trump is lower than he's ever been. And you are seeing suddenly large numbers of people who voted for him just saying the combination of 
a disastrous response to the pandemic and a, really a, almost an effort, an effort to turn the military on, on our own people. Th that, that was a bridge, bridge too far. But it, the biggest worry for me is that it will be, even if it is not a close election, it, it's gonna be a tremendous amount of vote by mail. We are almost certainly not going to have an answer immediately. Hmm. And what could happen then with, with him saying, you know, the, the election's been stolen, they took it, calling people out. We may reach another moment, at the, like the one we've just been through, where we have to call out the National Guard to simply allow the vote counting. I have to simply believe that a majority of my fellow Americans will in the end insist that the democratic process be allowed to play out. But I do think the next four to five months are very scary in many ways. So I do want to shift to international affairs because everything's going great. You've written a, a number of interesting uh, books uh, on international affairs, and, but the most recent one is The Chessboard and, and the Web. In it, you talk about how networks of states and non-state actors and sub-national actors, cities and uh, you know, provinces and the like, can organize in coalitions to deal with specific global problems. By the way, this is a very Canadian idea. So uh, you know, this is the kind of uh, message that is extremely well received in this country. But people might say this isn't the direction of travel uh, for the, the major trends in the world, that, that what we're seeing is, is a kind of reversion to an older style of interstate and great power competition. How do you think about cooperation in a world that's becoming, that seems to be becoming increasingly conflictual? All right, well, now I will just be uh, blunt. <laughs> provocative. You know, if I look around and I look at the people who are announcing that we are back in a world of great power competition, they are overwhelmingly white men. They are overwhelmingly people who uh, thought that either not just 20th century great power politics, but 19th century great power politics were the way the world should be run. They want a world of five to six, maybe 10 states, maybe 20 in the G20, but certainly no more than that who dictate everybody else's affairs and they want a world in which they can get into a room and negotiate. Uh, and that is not a world I wanna be part of, but more importantly, that is not a world that is actually addressing the existential problems we face. I don't wanna say that we couldn't still blow one another up. You've still got nuclear powers and certainly the, that capacity. But as I look at the existential problems that face all of us, there is the threat of violence, but I am far less worried that China is going to invade in some way than I am that we are going to cook the planet. And I'm very serious about that, not, and not just for my children, even for the world we're living in right now. And if you put that together with ocean acidification and food scarcity and water scarcity, and then the pandemic linked to that, the disease linked to that, and the migration that is linked to that, that then does cause conflict. What do we need to be doing as a world? It is not worrying about the United States versus Russia versus China versus Iran and North Korea. Again, I'm not saying that the foreign, foreign office should shut down, of course not, 
But I'm saying it is both and. We do need to pay attention to other countries, but really we need to build the infrastructure that can deal with global problems. You know, we have an international system, internation, but these threats are global. And so that's where I argue, yes, you need federal governments, you need foreign ministers, of course you do, but they have to be part of a much bigger global infrastructure that does include cities and states and CEOs and civic leaders and educators and faith groups. You know, it, it affects all of us uh, and all of us have to be part of the solution. And you mentioned Rahm Emanuel, right? He just wrote a book that said, the city is really the, the equivalent of the nation state going forward. You know, in some ways that's an answer to questions that get raised all the time about the, the future of the rules-based international order, or liberal international order. And, and, and part of your answer is, as you've said here and as you've written elsewhere, it's not just about states and it's not just about realist great power politics. It's all the stuff that's the webs, as you say, and the connections. However, a lot of people would say, in spite of that, you know, the systems of rules and, and you know, in a sense, governance or regulation that have been constructed, however imperfectly over the past several decades, are themselves being eroded. Uh, what is your assessment of the current state of the, you know, the rules structures within international affairs? And is this uh, almost proliferation of activism and connections across a great range of areas, would that be sufficient to be able to compensate for what seems to be a backsliding in many areas? So I do think that's actually the hardest question because for all the problems in the world post-1945, it is a better world than pre-1945. And then you go back again to the 19th century where you could just invade another nation at will. Yes. Uh, it, we have, in fact, made real progress on global war and peace and our capacity to steer the global the, the global commons. And if you think about 2008 and that financial crisis with Obama uh, calling together the leaders of the G20 uh, and really working mm -hmm. to try to mitigate uh, what happened, we have made progress. You don't want to lose that. What we have to do is both recognize the value of a rule-governed order, but also recognize that that order cannot survive unless it is opened up in all sorts of ways. So even without Donald Trump, and well before Donald Trump, I, I'm on record saying, you're not going to run the world in 2045 with the victors of World War II in 1945. You, know, you just can't do that. So this, again, this goes to opening up those circles. Who has a stake in those rules? Which countries? But also, it isn't just the countries. And this goes back to our domestic conversation. I mean it when I say if you look at the national security establishment, it is overwhelmingly male, overwhelmingly white in white majority uh, countries. So changing up who is around the table is part of giving people a stake in keeping those rules and reshaping them because we need to change them. But I would certainly prefer evolution rather than revolution. So I think there is a way you can take existing international organizations and where one won't work, you know, if the UN won't do it, then go to a regional organization. And if you need to use parts of the UN uh, or you need to create a group rather than a formal international organization, go with what you have. 
but flatten them in ways that they are also then able to create these broader networks, which also means, and I feel badly about this for the many diplomats I know, but the people in our foreign offices can't just be lifelong diplomats. We need to have much more ability to have someone who is in a mayor's office go into have a stint in a foreign office or somebody who was a CEO or somebody who was an NGO. There needs to be more fluidity in terms of who can actually steer global affairs uh, for all of our nations. I couldn't agree more. And uh, in fact, I'm writing something just now, which will appear shortly about the need for that within the Canadian Foreign Service or more of that within the Canadian Foreign Service too. But let's say uh, Joe Biden uh, gets elected and turns to you and you know, wants to implement this approach to international, to kind of multilateral, your version of multilateralism. He would still have to deal with the legacy of the period that Trump has been in power. He'd have to deal with the damage in relationships and the damage has been significant. The, the mistrust even among the United States and its traditional allies. Where do you start in trying to repair some of that damage as he might be trying to implement this more uh, you know, forward looking uh, foreign policy that you've described? And the damage has been enormous. It's deeper than the kinds of uh, massive fluctuations in global public opinion we've seen before. When Barack Obama took office, the United States, particularly in Europe and in Canada, was, it wasn't at an all-time low. I mean, in 1982, only 4% of Germans approved of the United States when we were trying to put intermediate nuclear missiles into Germany. So we've seen this before, but Obama was able to get those numbers up to 70 or 80% very quickly. That's not gonna happen this time. And it isn't just Trump. It is exactly that the United States has been an outlier on so many things. Uh, and we're using our power for ill in many places. So I think that where he starts is with our traditional allies. But it isn't a, hey guys, we're back. It is a, okay, you know, you are our greatest assets in the world. And we together are a huge force. The United States, Canada, Japan, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, other countries around the world. That is a force for great good and there's a lot of power. But the United States will not be the leader. We will be a leader. And again, I think about networks and hubs. I, I hope we will always be a central hub in the world and a force for good, but will only be one. So what he has to do is go back and make clear that we know that we have really been, you know, been a, a troublemaker, we've been a menace in many ways, but also invite our traditional allies to think with us about a new way to lead. And it's interesting to look at all these movements. You know, it started with Tahrir Square and the, the Twitter revolutions, but now if you look at the movement for Black Lives, there are not a couple heroic figures. There are a lot of people and they're much more decentralized. It's not totally de decentralized, but there's room for lots of leadership. So if Canada's taking the lead on important subjects, if Australia wants to take the lead against China in the WHO, great. We do not, we are, we may be indispensable to the world going where it needs to go, but we are not the indispensable nation to leadership. Nevertheless, American power will still be vitally important. And you mentioned China. 
and tensions, and, and I'm sure you're aware of the uh, very serious uh, diplomatic tensions between uh, Canada and China right now, uh, over the uh, now over 500 days detention of two uh, Canadians who, uh, by all appearances, are innocent uh, uh, pawns in the Chinese attempt to pressure Canada for itself having detained Meng Wanzhou, uh, a, a Huawei executive, on a U.S. extradition request, and then coming back to U.S. power. Do you think the United States has some responsibility to use its power to secure the release of those two Canadians, given that it is a U.S. indictment that led Canada to arrest Meng Wanzhou? I do, uh, and I think more broadly, again, if you think what, is, what does it mean to be an ally, and what, equally importantly, must we collectively safeguard to have the world that any of our citizens are going to live in? So this is you know, pure, a pure power play, uh, and it is one that could affect any of us at any time. And so you have to then say, yes, we have an obligation, but equally, and this is where traditional diplomacy operates, you, you know, tap your allies, you push really hard, you also work with uh, non-state allies, but really this is one where you make clear to China and you bring as many countries on board as you can that this is not the way we're gonna do business in the world because this way is disastrous for all of us. It's like diplomatic immunity. Uh, it's just taking, it's taking hostages who are not, not diplomats. But yes, we, we have that responsibility as your ally, but we have that responsibility because that's not the world we, we want to be in. How do you see U.S.-China relations playing out over the next few years? I mean, the Trump administration in the last few months, his language has become extremely bellicose. The Chinese too, I mean, both sides warning of a new Cold War, but but even before that, I mean, uh, China has become more assertive in recent years, especially, you know, uh, 19th Party Congress, 2017, Xi Jinping, uh, for the first time since uh, Deng Xiaoping's uh, lay low uh, doctrine, basically saying, hey, the rest of the world, how about our authoritarian surveillance model is something that you might want to replicate. And there has been apparently a shift in Washington, you tell me, uh, towards a very quick shift that's bipartisan towards seeing China as a strategic challenger of the United States. Where does this go? Is this a managed competition or is this an escalating a confrontation in the coming years? There's no question, I think, that the decades-long consensus in the United States that China opening up, China growing uh, was good for us, right? The responsible stakeholder model that we would, we would work to help China open up. We thought this was good for China and good for us, and China would become increasingly responsible on the world stage. To some extent, China has, right? China pays more for peacekeepers. China is playing within the United Nations. Yes, they are trying to get people to vote for them. Well, the United States has done that for a really long time too. So there is a space in which you have to say, China is a great power on the world stage and it is going to advance its interests uh, in the ways other countries do. But to go to your earlier question, there, are, there have to be real red lines about what you can do and, and what you can't do. So on the one hand, 
it's a competition. It's a strategic competition. We even have that with a friendly, more, you know, nations that are more like us when it's an authoritarian state that violates many of our values, you have to be much more careful. On the other hand, how are we ever going to combat climate change or fight for global health without deeply engaging the Chinese? We cannot. So the idea that this can be a cold war, <laughs> I love Game of Thrones, but this is, you know, let's play Game of Thrones and summer is coming and we will be done in. There are many people who think that that's the allegory, right? But, but mm -hmm. truly, you have to be able to engage them and contain them at the same time. That was actually Kennan's view of the Soviet Union, but everybody remembered the containment part, not the engagement part, and the military-industrial complex had a real stake right, in ramping up uh, the military competition. But the other difference was our societies weren't intertwined. And yet now, it will hurt Canada and the United States immeasurably if Chinese students don't keep coming, not just because they're paying, but because we are building those ties. And look at the numbers of Chinese Americans and Chinese Canadians. You know, it would be like saying, I'm a half Belgian, uh, so it would be like cutting off my family uh, in Europe, right? We so we have to again do both. It's a it is a strategic competition, but there has to be a lot of room for social so, so, social integration, education, uh, and work on global issues together, even where we disagree. Does the strategic competition include elements of deglobalization or decoupling? I mean, that's clearly the direction. Uh, for vital medical equipment and ingredients for uh, vital pharmaceuticals. It was the direction of travel already for certain kinds of techno uh, techno communications technology. Uh, what do you think about those areas as being kind of removed from the, the world of global supply chains and should it extend to other areas as well? So this is hard because it's a slippery slope, but I definitely believe that building security it means resilience, right? So if you think about what Sharon Burke, who works at New America, calls natural security, access to food, to water, to energy, and to critical minerals, so rare earths, you want to make sure that if something gets disrupted, and that could be by a natural disaster, and it could be by a political crisis, you've got things to fall back on. That will strengthen our economies, it's, it's less efficient. I think that's a good thing. I'm perfectly happy to reshore quite a bit. It will be good for our workers. It'll be good for our economy. So there will be some of that. Uh, and yes, the medical supplies, there's a, there's a whole set of sort of critical things. Shouldn't mean that you don't have ties to China. It just means you've got something to fall back on. Uh, so it's, it's reshoring, but you're, you should still be offshoring as well. The technology piece is, is much harder because you have to choose. And if we absolutely say, no, you've got your technology and we have ours, then we are building what Joshua Ramo calls Gatelands uh, in his book, The Seventh Sense, where he says, you know, there'll be the Chinese Gateland and its allies and there'll be the American one and we'll see where Europe is. And that's where, honestly, I understand the dangers with Huawei, but I would prefer to give China a continuing stake in selling to the West and selling globally in ways that give us leverage and give and, and allow also users to say, 
I, I don't want your software because I know you're spying on me, rather than having completely closed uh, virtual worlds. It's tricky because we're not going to just have one internet, but there's got to be something in between one internet and a complete splinter net. Uh, and how we think about uh, who buys what technology is a very complicated piece of that. First of all, thank you for watching. And especially to those who have been uh, putting their questions on the Q&A board, I've been reading all of them and weaving a lot of the questions into mine. But there's one here by Robert, and it really uh, gets at the performance of countries responding to COVID. And, you know, there's been a longstanding debate or observation, I should say, that, that, there's, that the number of democracies in the world has been slowly decreasing, that democracies are becoming on, on average more illiberal, that this is part of this larger observation about the so-called democratic recession, that authoritarian states have become more assertive, uh, more emboldened. Certainly Canada, we've felt that with China. We've even felt it with Saudi Arabia targeting Canada for saying the wrong things. But now in the context of COVID, it seems like there's a competition to be able to demonstrate whether or not different systems are able to handle the crisis. And, you know, the, I think the conventional um, assessment is, reading is, the jury is out. You have some democratic states that have done exceptionally well, like uh, South Korea or Taiwan uh, or Japan, others that have done uh, and some authoritarian states that have done well. So coming to Robert's question, the U.S. is generally considered by foreign observers to be underperforming most of its peer countries in response to COVID-19. Are you concerned that this perception will make it more difficult to assert leadership in rebuilding the rules-based order if and when a new U.S. administration is prepared to take on the mantle of leadership? Yes. I am very worried, and you are kind to say that we are underperforming. I mean, this is a disaster. You know, the EU is, is not going to let Americans in. If that doesn't give America a wake-up call. But it goes back, of course, to the earlier conversations about, uh, you know, domestic politics and the fact that a virus, just like climate change, can be weaponized and politicized. So if you only watch Fox News, for a long time, you believed that this was some kind of conspiracy on the part of the left. Uh, and of course, if you're on the internet, it's, it's far worse than that in terms of what people will believe. So yes, I think this is a deep challenge. This is a, it, it's a Sputnik moment, except it's so much worse because of the, the lives uh, that are going to be sacrificed because we couldn't respond. The response here, and this is very important because of course China has been arguing for a long time, our system delivers better. And I remember Madeleine Albright always saying, democracy has to deliver. And, and the surge forward, and again, this is Huntington and the fourth wave, right? We see these surges forward of, of, of the spread of democracy and then the tide recedes and then it surges again. But right now, the ability to use technology for good to protect people is going to be very, very important. That's why Taiwan uh, has, is such a model here and South Korea. Uh, being able to use uh, apps to trace the virus in a way that does not then invade your, your privacy and make you subject to an authoritarian state. I mean, the kind of face, facial recognitions 
technology that China is building should be terrifying to everyone. Uh, but the United States is not there, right? That is, that is not us. It may be a few of our states, although even there we are late. So I do think we are going to have to be able to find a way to take advantages of, of our technology in the public good with all the protections. Uh, but to do that, again, we go back to, we have got to address the failings in our political system. I believe we can. Uh, but without that, we can't get to where we need to go. And I absolutely think other nations will look at us and say, you've got, you know, the third highest death toll in the world. Yeah. And uh, the direction of travel there, you know, the slope of the line is uh, very scary to everyone, including your immediate neighbors. Another question from Andres. Latin America has been considered by some as the backyard of the United States. How do you see the United States involvement in Latin America moving forward in an era during which China and Russia have been increasing their influence over certain countries in Latin America like Venezuela? That question, I, I hear it and I think, you know, as somebody who grew up in the 60s and 70s, you know, it was Cuba. Uh, it's been, it's been uh, various Latin American countries for a very long time. I think if you look over the century, we will be the Americas much, much more. Again, this is demography. Latinx Americans will be the single largest non-white group uh, growing quickly. Uh, and so much of how we think about our foreign affairs has been a function of who we were. And we, the majority in the United States, uh, were white Europeans. So it is not surprising that we have extraordinarily dense relationships uh, with Western Europe. Going for, and again, I would include there, obviously China, uh, Canada has that same history. But as we, we increasingly trace our roots to Central America and Latin America, and we have the language and we have the family ties, those will ultimately take precedence over Russia or China or any country meddling in the region because those are thick ties. They're the ties first of family and then of economy and education and all of that. But that's a century long process. So in, you know, I've watched administration after administration come in and claim we really are going to pay attention to Latin America and then it it gets blown up by the uh, by a more recent uh, crisis. Uh, I think it probably, uh, and this is in part for Latin American countries getting their houses in, in order, uh, we will still see a bumpy couple of decades there uh, where uh, you will see this as a flashpoint for other nations' intervention. I hope the United States has at least learned enough not to counter-intervene, because then we almost always make matters much worse. Peter McKinnon asks, can you comment on what lessons can be learned from the pandemic in galvanizing attention to address climate change, both domestically and, and in the world at large? Maybe I can add to that. What would your advice be to a Biden administration in its first few months with regard to climate change? I really do think a sort of a national education campaign. Obviously, there are people on the left who are completely woken up about this, but I would assemble not, I wouldn't just assemble uh, 
scientists. I would go for Republican mayors, right? Repu people from uh, across the country, as local as possible, people who are on the front lines of, of the Cuban uh, community in Miami and their city is sinking, you know, where they're just or from the fires, from the droughts. Uh, but back that with not just here's what's happening, because that's the problem. You don't win. And there, there's a, maybe a COVID lesson here on here's the disaster. You win on here are the things we can do that will give a, a you know, safeguard our future and our children's and kickstart our economy uh, in so many ways. And the, the link there is that COVID itself may not be directly traceable to climate change, but countless other viruses are. And people have been predicting this now for two decades. Uh, and suddenly people realize what a pandemic means. So I would use that to say, okay, this one, we, you know, it comes from a wet market in China, but as animals get increasingly squeezed, they're much more in proximity with humans. That in part is a function of climate change. I would draw every link possible. And then the link to just the, the dangers of, of what's happening to our oceans uh, and to biodiversity generally. But I think you make it a positive message that this is how we reinvent our world. In the spirit of your work, a lot of the progress that's been made on climate change has been uh, among actors that aren't national governments. How can those efforts be better harnessed in order for us to make even more progress on climate change than we've been able to make? Related question. We saw these massive protests, it seems like a million years ago with Greta and her tour. Is that an enduring rising of public passion about this issue? Has it been displaced by all the other crises that we've been living through? How to capture and channel that kind of public passion into this effort as well. It seems like there's all these different instruments and tools and forces, how to combine them into something that's actually going to do something where we're not going to be regretting what we're bequeathing to our children and grandchildren. Well, so the good news again is that we have the technologies uh, that can make a huge difference. And we have seen just how fast habits can change, mm -hmm. right? It's extraordinary. Suddenly here we are, you know, on Zoom and I will be traveling a quarter to as half as much pretty much for the rest of my life. I'm fairly certain now that I know that I can do this and I would not have been able to come to Ottawa no matter how much I might have wanted to. So you can now suddenly imagine everybody driving a green car, right? If you had to, if you, if you make the changes we've made, you can make those changes. So that's on the positive side. What links these things is basic justice. So again, if you look at racial justice, but then you look at climate justice and health justice in the United States, it is African-Americans uh, and other Americans of color who are the least healthy, who are the most likely to be suffering from not just climate change writ large, but everything from you know, the worst side of town, the worst environmental conditions, uh, the people who live in the areas that are most vulnerable to floods and drought, so there are ways of saying, look, if we focus on justice for the least of us, not, the, not in the moral sense, but in the sense of the people who have the least, we actually will find a way forward that will benefit all of us. 
And it's very clear in health uh, because otherwise you are spreading either both communicable diseases, but also the problems of non-communicable diseases. So I do think the young people are focused on a sense of the world is unjust and how we try to make it more just. There are lots of intersections there. And again, I think if you then tie that to economic incentives, which is not hard to do, mm -hmm. it's lack of political will, and you suddenly can get an acceleration that can happen very quickly. Amory, I so much enjoy listening to you because of your pragmatism and optimism. And it's a real tonic. And I think we're leaving this discussion on a hopeful and high and realistic note as well. So thank you very much for participating in this recovery project discussion. Thanks to all of you for joining us as well. If you'd like to listen again to this conversation or if you'd like to share it with friends, please visit the website recoveryproject.org where you'll find a link to this session and much more. And with that, I wish everyone a good day or good evening wherever you may be in the world. Thank you. Thank you. Such a pleasure.